Five or six years ago, I was driving down the Lloyd Expressway, returning home after an appointment, when I noticed that as I was driving, my vision was becoming blurry, and so I tried to blink it away, but it wouldn't go away. In fact, I began to realize that I was slipping out of consciousness. At the same time, the whole left side of my body was shutting down, and I couldn't use my, could not use my left arm, and uh, I began to just kind of go this way, and it became very hard to breathe. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is what it's like to die. My main concern at the moment was that I was driving, so I was just able, with my right arm, to steer the car into a left turn lane. And then when I got the car stopped, I was able to call my wife. Um, She was on speed dial, and I was able to call her, and then she called 911 for me. While I waited for the ambulance... I started to sweat like I had just run a marathon. It was cold outside, but I, I turned the air conditioner in my car as high as I could get it. Still, by the time the ambulance arrived to get me, everything that I had on, all of my clothes, were just dripping wet. The ambulance took me to Deaconess Gateway. Uh, immediately, the doctors ran an EKG on me, and then people began to take blood. But when they returned with the results, they said everything was fine. And that what I had probably experienced was a panic attack. Now, people had told me before about panic attacks. I'd never had one before, certainly never imagined by what they had described. I certainly never imagined it felt like you were dying. So for the next few days, I doubted the doctor's diagnosis, but I was also afraid it was going to happen again while I was driving, so my panic attack was creating panic. And those of you who've experienced a panic attack know what it's like. You know what I mean when I say that you're almost panicked that it's going to happen again. It was a terrifying experience. But for me, it was also a wake-up call. I began to realize that the doctors were correct after all, and that I needed to confront something about myself that I had never really confronted, that I have a problem with anxiety. And apparently, I'm not alone. A recent survey by the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that more Americans than ever before are stressed, depressed, and anxiety-ridden. According to a 2013 survey by the American College Health Association, 57% of female and 40% of male college students report feeling overwhelmingly anxious. And I think we could all uh, come up with all of the different reasons for that, all of the things in our culture that make us feel anxious. The bottom line is that we live in an anxious age. And as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the ways that we can demonstrate the beauty of life within the kingdom of God is by growing in our experience of peace. And so this morning, we're launching into a new series called Letting Go of Anxiety. And we're going to be focusing on one particular passage of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he had planted in Philippi, Greece. Paul was actually in prison as he writes this letter, facing death, which is what makes the tenor of this letter so remarkable. And you're going to see some of that throughout this series. So for those of you who are regulars here at City Church, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4. For those of you who are new, 
Don't fear, we'll put the verses up on the screen for you, but our regulars here know to bring some copy, whether it's digital or hard copy, of the Bible with them. I want to welcome those of you who are listening to us online as well. I want you to know that we're very glad that you have joined us too. While you are finding Philippians chapter 4 in the New Testament, let me just say a quick word of caution. I want you to understand, and I'm going to put this up on the screen because I want to make sure you get this. I want you to understand that you are not a spiritual failure if you need medication to help control your anxiety. Let me just say that one more time. You are not a spiritual failure if you need medication to help control your anxiety. Don't interpret anything in this series. Don't interpret anything said in this series that you are spiritual failure. Sometimes your genetic makeup or maybe the traumas that you have experienced set your sort of base anxiety levels so high that pharmacological help is necessary, okay? Nothing that we're going to say in here contradicts that, all right? I want to start by reading just the first part of the passage that we're going to be in throughout this series. I want to start at Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Now, we're going to read uh, more than just these verses in this series, but I want to just start and camp here. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a passage that many of you are familiar with. It's not one that's, that's new to most of you. But I think there's a few preliminary things that I want to make sure that we understand clearly about anxiety and about peace before we get into the rest of this series. So let me just start with some things about anxiety that I think are important for you to know. First, I want you to see that anxiety is not normal care and concern, right? There's a difference between normal care and concern about something or about someone that you love and anxiety. The word that Paul uses for anxiety here is a Greek word that means to be torn up, to be torn into pieces by debilitating worry and fear. All right, so let's say that your son or daughter is going away to summer camp. In the weeks leading up to camp, you find yourself sick with worry. I mean, like literally nauseous with worry. And the closer camp gets, you find that you can't even get out of bed because you're so upset about this. Okay, that's debilitating worry, and fear, all right? That's anxiety. Now, on the other hand, if you say to yourself, look, I'm concerned for my child's well-being, which is why I took the time to choose this particular camp. I thought it was safe, and I, I, and I still, I, I know that something can happen. I, I sure hope nothing bad happens. And then once your child is on the bus, you turn and say to your spouse, woohoo, we've got the house to ourselves for two whole weeks. That's normal care and concern, all right? That's not anxiety. That's normal care and concern. You see the difference? Anxiety is about debilitating worry and concern. Okay, second. Anxiety, I want you to know this, anxiety is a perfectly rational response to a world in which you have so little control. It's a perfectly rational response to a world in which you have so little control. This is why the Bible speaks about fear and anxiety in so many places, including this one, as sort of, the Bible speaks of anxiety as sort of the default state 
of the human heart. Like it's the default position of the human heart, anxiety. Look at what Paul says here. He's saying it's possible to experience peace, but notice he says it's a peace that comes from God. It's supernatural. It's not natural. It's not, it's not, it's not normal. Super normal. Supernatural. See, if you understand the world that we live in, if you take stock of the facts of human existence, the only sane response to this world is anxiety. Because you don't have any control over it. Oh, you think you... I mean, yeah, maybe we got a little control. Like, I had a little control this morning over what I put on, okay? But that, I mean, we don't have much more control than that. The only sane response is anxiety. It's the optimists and the Pollyannas that are crazy, On what basis does an optimist believe everything's just going to work out? Have you ever heard of the second law of thermodynamics? It says that everything moves toward chaos. Not going to just work out. Tell the victims of some of history's most terrible dictators like Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini and Nikolai Ceausescu, to name a few. Tell them that everything is just going to work out. Tell that to the 154 million people who live in Cape Town, South Africa today who are only allowed to use 12 and a half gallons of water per day due to a three-year drought, and all they can do is just wait for what they're calling day zero, the day when all the water runs out. Tell them it's just going to work out. How do you know that? It might rain. It might not. It hasn't for three solid years. Tell the 120,000 people living in North Korean prison camps today, tell them, it's just going to work out. A few years ago, a journalist by the name of Barbara Ehrenreich wrote a book in which she talked about the problem, listen to this, you're going to be surprised by this, she talked about the problem of optimism in America. The book was called Bright-Sided, How the Relentless Promotion of Positive Thinking Has Undermined America. Listen to what she says. Positive thinking may be a quintessential American activity associated with both individual and national success, but it is driven by a terrible anxiety. Now, I would argue that it has not only undermined America, but it's undermined the spiritual lives of many people in America. What her conclusion in the book is that what we need is vigilant realism. Neither too much optimism nor too much cynicism, but a firm grasp of the facts in all of their complexity. And I'm here to tell you that a firm grasp of the facts of the world leads to a default state of anxiety in the human heart. Because we have so little control over anything. And if people understood that, more people would recognize their need for a personal creator God. Optimists and Pollyannas have to live in denial of reality to avoid anxiety. And that's a theme that you're going to see repeated a number of times this morning and throughout this series, all right? So anxiety, it's not just normal care and concern. It's more than that. And uh, anxiety is a perfectly reasonable, sane response to the lack of control that you and I have in this world. Okay. Now, lest you despair and think, wow, I have to feel anxiety for the rest of my life. I want to look, I want to shift gears now, and I want to look at this peace that Paul talks about. And as he talks about peace, 
Um, first, there are a couple of things, quick things, that I think are important for us to see. One is, and I said this just a moment ago, Paul says that peace is supernatural. It's not natural. Now, see, I feel, I, the reason I think that's important to point out is that I think probably some of you are thinking about what I just said about anxiety being the default state of the human heart unless you deny reality. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute, what about all the podcasts and apps and self-help books that promise inner peace? I know people, you would say, who seem to have an inner peace. Well, notice that Paul says peace doesn't come from the inside. It comes from the outside. He says it's the peace of God. It's not inner human peace. It's outer, its, its origin is outer supernatural peace. Yes, it works from the inside out, but it starts outside. It doesn't start inside. And then also notice the last words of verse 7. This is a supernatural peace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, you have to have peace with God to experience the peace of God. And the only way to have peace with God is through belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. So it's the peace of God, not inner peace. And it's peace that only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, this is important for you to see and to understand. Because the premise of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there is a difference between a morally restrained heart and a supernaturally changed heart. There's a difference between controlling or suppressing the natural anxiety of the heart through willpower and seeing it permanently changed into a peaceful heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the premise of the gospel. It may be possible to use exercise or the power of positive thinking or drugs to suppress natural anxiety, but that's not the same as the peace of God that Paul speaks about here. This is talking about a heart that has been changed inwardly by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit of God. It's a heart that is now experiencing peace because of the work of the Spirit of God and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, okay, okay. I want you to be very careful here. Because just because a person has a relationship with God through Jesus Christ doesn't necessarily mean that they will experience peace. Okay? This isn't saying that this is somehow automatic or instantaneous. Peace is learned. It's not automatic. It's not instantaneous. There's not a formula that you, can, that you can work and then suddenly you will just begin to experience this wonderful peace. It doesn't work that way. Peace is learned. Well, how do you learn it? First, it starts with thinking. It starts with your thinking. If you go up into the context of what just comes before this passage, you're going to notice that at the beginning of chapter 4, uh, the beginning of chapter 4 begins with the word, therefore. And then Paul starts to talk about, actually in the first part of chapter 4, he begins to talk about peace instead of conflict between a couple of, couple of women. 
And then in our section that we're going to be looking at, he begins to talk about peace instead of anxiety. Okay. So the question is, what is that therefore based on? So when he says, therefore, you present your request to God, peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is that? What's that based on? Okay. Look at verse 20. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, I want to go back up. I want you to see the, the larger context here of what Paul is saying. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Now, what does that have to do with anxiety? What Paul is saying is that you have to think about whatever it is that, you, that is making you anxious in light of your beliefs. In other, words, in other words, you have to bring the big truths of your beliefs to bear on your little problems. In light of what I believe about my Savior, that He has the power to bring everything under His control, how big is this problem really? In light of the fact that I have a citizenship that is in heaven, that I have a future that is going to last for all of eternity. How big is this problem, this thing I'm anxious about? How big is this really? And this is what you have to understand about the difference between, say, a self-help book and the Bible. A self-help book is never going to tell you, it's never going to start by saying, hey, let's think about the big questions of life. It's not going to say, uh, hey, this problem that, with anxiety that you're having right now, let's start with the big picture questions of life. Why are we here? What happens after we die? Is there a personal creator God? No, it's never going to do this. It's not going to start like that. It's always going to go straight to technique. Do yoga. And I'm not against yoga, by the way. Schedule a vacation. Discipline your mind not to think negative thoughts. It's not going to start with thinking. It's going to start with technique. And of course, the reason for this is to avoid the logical consequences of unbelief. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Okay? The logical consequences of unbelief. If there's no God, why be concerned about what happens to your kids? Why care about their education? their safety? Why care about their emotional well-being? Your kids are merely random cosmic accidents who have no meaning, no significance, and no purpose. And whatever love that you think you feel for them is nothing more than a chemical reaction because there is no such thing as love. See, that's the logical consequence. No self-help book is going to say that. But that's the logical consequence of there being no God. You say, well, that feels terrible to think about. That's morbid. It's depressing. It's anxiety-producing. Let's not think about that. Okay, that's fine. But just understand that what, you're that what you're doing is that you're trying to rid yourself of the implications of your beliefs by not thinking. By not thinking out the implications of what you believe. It's actually a very anti intellectual way of living, which is ironic because what, what some people will 
what, what cultural elites will say about Christianity is that it is dumb, that it is, uh, that it is anti-intellectual. What I'm arguing is that what they do is anti-intellectual. Because on the one hand, they demonstrate all sorts of care and concern. Let's get our kids to the right schools, educate them in the right places, all of that. But they're also saying there is no God. And if there is no God, then that doesn't make any difference where your kid goes to school. That's anti-intellectual. All right. The Bible, thank you very much for that. The Bible's always going to start with thinking out the implications of your beliefs about God because He is where peace is rooted. That's why Paul calls it the peace of God. There's no other peace in the world except the peace of God. It's only available to those who are in Christ Jesus. You may have noticed also that the peace that Paul refers to here, I think this is important for you to see, it's not just about avoiding anxious thoughts. Okay, It's not like, well, you know, just don't think anxious thoughts. Don't think anxious thoughts. Don't, don't think anxious thoughts. It's not that. The peace that Paul's talking about is the presence of something. In particular, it's the presence of the sense of being protected. Look at verse 7. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That word guard is a military word. It's a very vivid word. It means to take a bunch of soldiers, to take an army, and surround a city with the army to protect it from invasion. That's what the peace of God is. That's what the peace of God does. It protects your heart and your mind from the invasion of the normal anxious thoughts that you and I or anyone else would have from living in this world. It protects, it guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now, see, this is why I think it's so hard for us to believe a passage like this one. Because... See, as I said a little while ago, many of you know this passage. You have it memorized. You've got it on a mirror in your bathroom. You've got it maybe on your refrigerator. You've got it framed on your wall someplace. You tried it, but it didn't work. And you've given up on this. And even as I introduced this this morning, you're thinking, how cliche can he be? And I see this all the time. Over all the years that I've done counseling, when I, you know, people come in, maybe they come in, maybe there's a problem with anxiety, maybe there's a problem with a uh, sense of self-esteem, identity, maybe, uh, you, you know, it, it could be a sense of purpose in life. I always tell them, somewhere in their point, I always say, you have to go back to the cross of Christ to heal your anxiety, to heal your lack of a sense of purpose to heal your sense of identity. And every time I do that, people's eyes glass over. It's like, no, that can't be it. I tried that. It didn't work. The reason so many of us have such a hard time believing that the Bible has anything to say on practical matters is that we want to go straight to technique. We want a quick fix. It's what we're conditioned to expect. It's what we're conditioned to do. Get a quick fix. Give me some technique. Tell me what I should go do. But experiencing peace, the peace of God, is learned. It takes time. And it begins not with technique, but with thinking. With your thinking. 
and bringing big truths to bear onto relatively small problems. At least they're small for the creator of the universe. See what I'm saying? It starts with your thinking, and you have to keep doing it. You have to keep pounding these thoughts into your head over and over again about who you believe and what you believe to be true about a personal creator God. All right, that's number one, thinking. Now, second way you learn peace is by thanking. Now, if I, were, if I were back in Texas talking about this, the problem would be you wouldn't know the difference between whether I'm saying thinking and thanking. You might just say, when I say thanking, that I really mean thinking. Like, we're thanking. We're just thanking. You learn peace by thanking. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving... Present your request to God. Okay, I want to. I'm, I'm going to admit something to you. Uh, there, you know, like uh, what's what's often happened to me is like there's something that I feel very anxious about, and so I, you know, okay, I need to do this. So I go to God and I pray. I'm in prayer and I'm praying about this thing and I'm just really praying about this thing that makes me anxious and I'm presenting my requests to God. God, do this. God, do that. But when I'm done, I don't feel peace. I feel worse about what I was praying for than I did when I started. Has that ever happened to you? Like your mind gets so focused and so concentrated on whatever it is that you're praying about that you, become, you almost become more obsessed at the end of it. One of the reasons for that is that Paul doesn't just say pray. Now, he's talking about a particular kind of prayer. He's saying pray with thanksgiving. Now, I think that most people think, well, when you say pray with thanksgiving, that means that you rehearse in your mind all of the things that God has done in your past for you, And then allow that to give you confidence that he's going to do something again for you in the future. And I certainly don't think that hurts. I think that's living a life of gratitude is very important. But I think what Paul has in mind here is the future, not the past. That you thank God in advance for answering your prayer. You're like, well, wait, how do I... How do I know he's going to answer my prayer? Oh, he always answers the prayers of his people, always. But not always in the ways that we ask him to. You see, you thought I was going to go all Joel Osteen on you there for a minute, and I was going to tell you, man, thank him in advance for, pray, for doing exactly what you're praying to do. That's not what I'm doing. You know how God answers the prayers of his people? This is it. When we make a request... God always gives us what we would have asked for if we, know every, if we knew everything that God knows. Like, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I am so limited. I am so ignorant. I don't know what's best for me. I don't know what's best for... You know, it's, I'm like a seven-year-old kid. You know, you tell a seven-year-old kid, go to bed... They don't understand that. They don't know why it's good for them to go to bed. They don't want to go to bed. Tell them to stop eating sweets. They don't want to stop eating sweets. They just keep eating them. Why? They're just limited. 
you couldn't possibly explain to them in a way that satisfies them why it's good for them to go to bed and stop eating so many sweets. You can't do it. And in the same way, I say, I don't know everything that God knows. But God answers my prayers. He gives me what I would have asked for if I knew everything that God knows. Romans 8.28 says this. Some of you are familiar with this passage of Scripture too, that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. In other words, do you remember what we said last week, those of you who were here last week, the big point last week? It was this. God is for you. And so he's working for your good. And because of that, we can thank God in advance for the entire range of possible ways that he might answer our prayers because we know that he is for us and that whatever he does will be the very best for us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is for you And that however he answers your prayer, it will be the very best thing for you. It will be good for you. Do you believe that? Because the extent to which you believe that is the extent in which you're going to have peace. You're praying about a loved one right now, let's say. Maybe they're in the middle of of a health crisis of some kind. You're petitioning God for his or her healing. Of course, that's what you're praying for. We all would pray for that. Lord, heal them. But peace comes when you can pray that, but at the same time, thank God that whether he intervenes or not, he will do what is best because he knows all of the things that you don't know. That's where peace comes from. See, if if your peace is only based upon God doing what you want Him to do, you will never experience peace because there are no promises in the Bible that God will do what you tell Him to do. Not a promise here in Philippians 4, not a promise in Romans 8, 28, that God will do what I ask Him to do. This passage is saying is that what guards our heart is the knowledge that God is good and wise and that He will give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything He knows. And so you thank Him for that in advance. Now, some of you are probably thinking to yourself, well, come on, man. Like, that's a, that's a cop-out. That just lets God off the hook for anything He does. And maybe you're like, you know what? He let my father die when I was only seven years old. How could that possibly have been the best thing? I don't have any idea. I just don't have any idea. I can't explain that to you. But think about your alternatives. If you refuse to believe that God is good until he explains your father's death adequately, how long would that take? How long would it take for you to understand the entirety and the complexity of God's plan for the world and how your father's death fit into it? 
I'm going to suggest to you that it would take you the rest of eternity to understand that, much longer than you're going to be alive. On the other hand, if you say, well, you know what, the presence of that kind of pain and suffering is a sign that there's no God. If you say that, you've got a bigger problem. Because then your suffering was meaningless. In fact, there's really no such thing as suffering. That's just a subjective opinion. Who's to say your father's death was wrong or bad or unjust? Without a God, see, you can't, make, you can't say those things. There are some things that are going to be inexplicable to us with a good, wise, loving, creator God. But without such a God, your suffering would be meaningless. And so here's a definition. Let me just give you this definition of peace. Peace, the peace of God is the trust in God's good, wise control of your life. That's what it is. It's the trust in God's good, wise control of your life. You know what anxiety is? Anxiety is all about my lack of control. I said that at the very beginning. The anxiety is, is this recognition that I don't have control. And so what I, you know, you know what the human way of solving that anxiety is? Well, one is to deny reality, or the other is to try to control everything in my life. But the more you try to control everything in your life, the more anxious you get. Because you recognize you can't control all those things. Peace, the peace of God, is, is, it's giving the control over to Him. It's the trust in God's good, wise control of your life. Let me ask you something. If you would have been one of Christ's disciples 2,000 years ago, what would you have thought could come out of Christ's death that was good? See, the disciples, by the way, the disciples did not think that Christ was going to die. They thought he was going to set up a kingdom. He was going to come in with supernatural power, and he was going to overwhelm the Roman authorities and just, you know, just wipe them out. And he was going to set up his kingdom, and the disciples thought, we are going to be members of his cabinet. They were busy measuring out rooms and spaces for desks, and, you know, they were getting clothes tailored and all of that kind of stuff, because they thought, we are, we've got a hold of a shooting star here, and we're going to be part of it. They didn't think he was going to die on a cross. If you would have been one of those disciples, what good could you have possibly imagined would have come out of Christ's death? Yet at that moment, they were looking at the greatest act of love and wisdom and power in all of human history, and one that has changed the course of history and eternity for untold numbers of people for over 2,000 years, including many of us in this very room. When Jesus died on the cross, do you understand that he lost all of his peace so that you and I could have peace now and for all of eternity? You learn the peace of God by thinking and by thanking because you know that if God was willing to do that to his son for you, if he was willing to tear his own son to shreds on a cross for you, what good thing would he ever hold back from you? And as we learn that, 
And we experience the peace of God in ever-increasing amounts. We demonstrate to the rest of the city the beauty of a life lived under the sovereign authority of King Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Uh, Lord, our, our tendency today is to look at this passage in a very, you know, as a, just another cliche passage that really doesn't work because the Bible doesn't really say anything relevant to us. Lord, would you, would you impress upon us today the power of this passage and, Lord, that there is a peace that comes from you uh, that transcends all human understanding. Lord, for those that are wrestling with anxiety today, anxious thoughts, uh, maybe it's crippling anxiety. Lord, would you speak to their hearts today? Lord, would you reassure people here who have a relationship with you that, that when they come to you with a request, you answer by giving them the very thing that they would have prayed for if they knew everything you know. transform us by our thinking and by our thanking. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray today.